Welcome to This Is How, an ACLU of North Carolina podcast that unlocks the untold stories of justice, freedom, and activism from right here in North Carolina. We will explore how we can make change happen one voice at a time. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered to create a fairer future for all. And now, here's our host. Hello, I'm Olivia with the ACLU of North Carolina. In today's episode, we're going to talk about reproductive justice in North Carolina, focusing on practical ways of supporting abortion access and exploring the historical context that led to the reproductive justice movement. Join us as we explore the resilient efforts of advocates who have been on the front lines, supporting marginalized communities. But first, let's go behind the headlines. It's important to remember these problems are nothing new. While the impacts of SB20 are devastating, many people in North Carolina have struggled to access abortion for years. In addition to legal issues, there are a wide variety of logistical barriers to getting an abortion in North Carolina. Let's say you're living in Hyde County and you want an abortion. First, you have to identify the closest clinic. There are only nine counties in North Carolina with an abortion clinic, and the closest one is two hours away. You'll need to find a way to get there, which can be difficult if you don't have a car. Even if you do, you'll have to pay for gas on top of the cost of the abortion, which averages between $300 and $600. Clinics won't let you drive yourself home, so someone will have to come with you. Abortion clinics have limited hours and availability, so you may have to take off work. If you're working an hourly job with no paid time off, that's going to mean lost wages. Two-thirds of people who have abortions already have at least one child, so you may also have to find someone to watch your child for you or pay for professional child care. Once you get to the clinic, you may be faced with protesters holding offensive signs and shouting at you. Now, thanks to SB20, on top of all these existing barriers, you will also have to go through all of these steps twice. First, you have to come in person to receive medically unnecessary state-mandated counseling, which used to be provided over the phone. Then you have to wait 72 hours, and then you'll have to come in again for your abortion appointment. While everyone who tries to get an abortion in North Carolina has to jump through these hoops, people with intersecting experiences with oppression have an even harder time accessing care, including women of color, working-class people, people in rural communities, people with disabilities, and folks in the LGBTQ community. Especially in the South, the history of abortion starts and ends with Black women. For generations, abortion was a common practice among midwives, who were then pushed out as obstetrics and gynecology became medical fields dominated by white men. These midwives performed life-saving care. For Black women, the services midwives provided allowed them to make decisions about their bodies and lives. Particularly for women who were enslaved, abortion was a way for them to mitigate the harm of sexual and reproductive abuse and have some control over their lives. Now, Black women are disproportionately harmed by abortion bans. They experience greater rates of unintended pregnancy and have a harder time accessing care due to financial constraints, the need for childcare, and medical racism. Black women also have a much higher rate of maternal mortality than white women in North Carolina, which means the risk of carrying an unwanted pregnancy to term is much greater. These intersecting issues that compound with reproductive freedom are what inspired the reproductive justice movement. We're gonna hear more about this reproductive justice and its origins from Maya Hart. They work for Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Maya is a multiracial black queer mama, birth worker, and reproductive justice organizer based in Durham, North Carolina. Maya has passionately shifted their focus to postpartum support, lactation education, and mutual aid since becoming a parent. Thank you so much, Maya, for joining us. Can you explain a little bit about 
What Sister Song does and what your role is for the organization? Yeah, so Sister Song is a Southern-based membership organization. So we are primarily based out of Atlanta, Georgia, but we have staff members in North Carolina and Kentucky as well. So those are our three key states where we have staff members on the ground, but we have members all across the country. Um, and we build power within the reproductive justice movement primarily through political education and convenings, and then also some policy advocacy work as well. Um, but really our job is to have folks understand how their work fits into the reproductive justice framework and movement, because once you understand how we define reproductive justice, it's pretty easy to understand how all these different issues that all of us care about um, fit directly into the framework. And so as the North Carolina coordinator, I'm responsible for building our relationships and programming across the state of North Carolina. Um, and again, pulling folks into the movement and building up folks' leadership skills as well. Great. So can you explain a little bit about what reproductive justice means to you and to the organization and kind of how that definition has developed? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the framework itself was developed in 1994 by a group of 12 Black women who recognized the ways that the experiences of Black folks and Black women in particular were not being centered in conversations about reproductive health care access and abortion. And so these 12 women got together and said, you know, you really have to understand the history of this country and the history of racism and white supremacy to understand what reproductive health care access actually means and looks like. And we can talk about all of the ways that we're pro-choice or that we want abortion to be legal, but if it's not accessible, you're uh, it's the same group of folks, primarily working class people, people of color, folks in rural areas, queer and trans folks who don't have access to those same services. And so Sister Song defines reproductive justice as the human right to bodily autonomy, to have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. And so to me, what that really, it's, it's a wonderful definition because it's so broad and can fit so many different issues into the framework. But to me, I really think about what would it mean and look like if every single person had access to our most basic human needs and that it wasn't, we didn't have to consider access to public education when we were having children or the cost of childcare mm -hmm. or paid leave um, or our or not knowing whether or not our children are going to come home safe at the end of the day because of police violence, for example. Um, and so all of these issues highlight what really is possible if we understand that we all play a role and have something to achieve out of reproductive freedom. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So you've talked about how reproductive justice goes beyond the issue of um, legalizing abortion and kind of the movement for yeah access within like the legal and legislative system. Can you talk about how abortion access specifically impacts women, women of color, especially black women? Yeah, to highlight a little bit of what I named and go a bit deeper, just because abortion is legal in a state doesn't mean that it's accessible. Um, and so even looking at a state like North Carolina, I'm not sure if this is the case after Senate Bill 20 has passed, but I believe there's abortion clinics in nine out of the 100 counties across North Carolina. And we, North Carolina has one of the best, if not the best, um, abortion policies right now, I think in the entire Southeast. Being the best in the Southeast, that still leaves 91 counties where there's no access to an abortion provider. 
it's a very specific set of folks who are going to have a harder time accessing that care. And so you have to think about where people live because transportation is a barrier as well as the cost of the procedure. It's going to be much harder for poor and working class people to access the care they need. And we know that that disproportionately impacts black women and people of color. Um, And then also things like childcare. Most most people seeking abortions are already parenting. And so what are they going to do with the, with their other children that they have to leave at home or can they even get off work to travel? All, All of these questions you have to consider when thinking about abortion access. And so it's going to directly harm people who are already discriminated against, um, in the medical system. Yeah, absolutely. So you helped us with our upcoming documentary, um, a collaborative short film that we did with Narrative Arts, which dives into the historical perspective on how abortion has uniquely impacted marginalized communities. When we look at how that history has led up to the present, uh, could you share a bit about the specific challenges and triumphs that we've observed in the reproductive justice movement in recent years and how that's kind of continued from the historical perspective? Yeah, I think one of the biggest themes that I keep coming back to is this privatizing of healthcare and just making it harder and harder for people to practice a skill set that we actually have been practicing for centuries and generations. Um, And so I always think back to even like the role of the midwife Mm -hmm. um, during slavery and black women's role in caring for their own children and the community's children. It was this really beautiful communal practice um, that was just normalized. It was normal to give birth and be surrounded by people. It was a a celebration, something to honor and, and share. And Now that hospitals have become the primary site of giving birth, it's really this more sterilized, privatized experience that's just kind of lost some of that, the communal aspect of it and really being this beautiful thing that we honor and celebrate. And now it's like, go have your baby in a cold, dark hospital room and get back to work as as quickly as you can, because that's more important than honoring our bodies and this new creation of life. Um, And so it's harder to access midwives, birth centers, doulas, um, all of these roles that have been played by community members for as long as we've existed are under attack. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, has your experience as a parent kind of shaped the way that you view reproductive justice or changed anything about your perspective? Yeah, it's changed a lot about my perspective being a parent is really hard and it's not at all what I thought it was going to be and what I wanted it to be. And that's coming from someone who knew, like my parents would tell you from three years old, I've wanted to be a mom and have been like so clear about being that role being something I wanted to take on. And this is just my personal experience, but it's just been extremely challenging um, to be a young parent, to become a parent in COVID um, and just to be raising a young black boy in a world that is attacking children right now um, and all of our access to bodily autonomy. And so as we see more and more attacks on all of our communities, I think it's made me really, well, reconsider having more children um, and also just having respect for people more and more respect for people who actually aren't interested in parenting Mm. or the people who are interested in parenting in a very particular way, uh, given what the world looks like right now. And so um, 
I'm lucky and grateful to have a lot of access to the resources I need to be able to parent in a way that I'm proud of. Um, but most people don't have access to all the resources they need to make those decisions, uh, not only for their child, but for themselves and their families. And so we need better access to housing, food, public school systems, um, to really rethink what safety looks like when it comes to parenting and our children. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm just more and more aware of those things as I continue raising a toddler. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like those are all conversations that are missing when we think about mainstream conversations about abortion access and when we think about the floor debates on SB20 and kind of how the legislature is thinking about abortion. It's in terms of what a person has a right to do with their own body, but when you really think about the context of reproductive justice, it becomes so much bigger than one person's body or one person's yeah. experience or choice. And yeah, it becomes about this bigger system where, yeah, um, yeah it's it's the whole lifespan and the whole yeah. Um, reproductive journey. Yeah. And it's really important to recognize that the same people who are attacking abortion access are the same people attacking queer and trans people defunding public education and not wanting to expand healthcare access broadly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the same infantilizing language of we know what's best for you and we're trying to protect women. We're trying to protect trans children or children in general from making these decisions that they might regret or these de decisions that um, others are morally opposed to. And it, in reality, it's just, you know, it's just an excuse to to take away bodily autonomy. Absolutely. Since the Dobbs decision and the passage of Senate Bill 20 in North Carolina, I think a lot of people have felt frustrated by the current state of things and felt like the decisions that are being made about their bodies and their lives are really out of their hands because they are voting and they are calling their representatives. And ultimately, we're still seeing these bills pass that are so restrictive and harmful. So what do you say when people want to know what can they do to help the movement beyond voting and kind of beyond the legislative system? How do you feel like you have efficacy in this work and what do you recommend to others? Yeah, and I echo a lot of those sentiments. I think it's really important to not be alone and isolated in those feelings um, because we're not going to build power individually and by ourselves. And so, I mean, specific to abortion, there are people and organizations who are committed to making sure people can access the care that they need no matter what. And so... Um, there are direct ways to support people, even if they're traveling out of state, to to ensure people have the funds for gas, for example, or have childcare. You know, there's really concrete ways there to make sure that however people are getting the care that they need to make sure they can do so safely with all of their needs taken care of. But I think more broadly, we have to be connected to the larger movement and again, not not move in isolation. And so that really means joining an organization mm -hmm. Um, a local organization or national organization um, that's building political power. And there's it depends on where you live and what type of work specifically you're interested in. But that's sort of my biggest takeaway in this moment is that it's so easy to fall into despair 
broadly and especially when we feel alone and we're not connected to our people and we don't have relationships with our people. And so it's really a call to stay connected and find different ways to plug in. You're not going to solve the whole issue by yourself. We all have a special skill set and particular interests and there's ways for folks of all different um, interests and abilities to plug into the movement. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. I, I feel I can find myself falling into despair, like you said, and feeling um, hopeless. And I think that is the most difficult feeling to encounter when you're working in a movement is like feeling hopeless because it leads you to be stagnant and and not take take action forward. Definitely working in the Reproductive Justice Coalition here in North Carolina has helped me to feel more connected and feel like even beyond the day-to-day work, it just makes me feel like I'm not alone and I'm not these feelings that I'm having of frustration and hopelessness and feeling like I'm, you know, hitting a brick wall over and over again. Those feelings are shared by others and those responsibilities are shared by others. And so that makes me feel a lot more um, like I'm part of something bigger. And I think that's what everybody wants to feel. Yeah. And that even reminds me about like this idea too of, of zooming out and Mm -hmm. that like, this is actually in the broader picture and the bigger picture, this is like a really tiny moment Mm. in what's going to be a really long fight, you know, beyond ourselves and beyond our lifetimes. Um, And so that sort of helps me put things into perspective when it does feel like you're coming up against a wall. Like we really, it's not about ourselves and it's not even about winning in our lifetime, but like setting up future generations for success too. Absolutely. I think that we've all talked in the last few years about redefining the win and like, what does it mean to achieve something in this moment where we're having our rights stripped away, that there is movement that we can still make and and things that we can do to set up the next generation. I feel like a lot of people in the last few years, especially kind of with COVID and with other really big historical events that are happening, people will say that it's unprecedented. And I think, you know, I'm sure people said that about Roe v. Wade being overturned. But I I find that it's helpful for me to realize that actually many of these events are very much precedented because they're coming um, on the heels of so many different historical moments and events that have led us to this moment. And this moment is difficult and scary and also precedented and is something that, you know, will move forward yeah. past. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also helpful for me. This is something I want to do more of, but looking to like the global and international context to learn from similar struggles that have happened across time outside of the United States. It's, it's really easy to focus on the United States as the center of our world because that's where we're living right now. But a lot of other countries and nations across um, across the globe have come up against similar fights. And it's really good to, to learn about their struggles and tactics and just, just learn from other people's movements. Yeah, definitely. What would you say to someone who hears this and wants to get involved? How would you recommend that they start? Yeah, I know Sister Song in particular, we're looking for ways to bring on more volunteers and just, again, like really lean on our people and not just be a staff trying to move the movement in the right direction, but understanding we need all of our people and supporters with us. Um, And so definitely to follow us on social media is where all of our our calls to actions will be. 
And on Instagram, we're at sistersong underscore W-O-C for women of color. Um, so that's the best way to fa- stay up to tune with what Sister Song is doing. We also have our national convening this year, which I'm excited about. Let's Talk About Sex will be in August in Washington, D.C. And so it's a really historic year. Also, this year is the 30th anniversary of the reproductive justice movement. And so there's a lot going on and a lot of ways to plug in and celebrate this year. And then more broadly, um, I think it starts with talking to people and building relationships and not recreating the work that's already being done. There's so many ways to plug into existing organizations. We don't need necessarily more organizations moving in in siloed spaces. We really need to build connection and talk to people about what they care about and what they're doing in their communities. That's where I would say is the best place to start. Yeah, talking to your loved ones and your friends and family is a great place to start because anybody can do it at any time. It's definitely not easy. I think that there's so much stigma around abortion, but also just shame around talking about, um, yeah, something controversial. I think it's it's difficult to have these types of conversations with people who you care about if you don't want to upset them or make them feel alienated. But I think that we're learning new ways of having those difficult conversations and they can really help to bridge divides. I feel like people who identify as, you know, anti-choice or anti-abortion sometimes just need to be asked the right questions to get to the root of what they really feel about the issue and um, how their perspective has been shaped by these broader political movements and um, these kind of statements by politicians that just aren't accurate. Yeah. And it's important to remember that like the majority of people are on our side and have the right ideas, even if they don't have the exact language that we would hope that they would use. Like you said, building that personal connection creates an opportunity to share some of that language and offer um, some of the useful ways that the the reproductive justice framework can inform our thoughts and ideas. Um, And that's another way to stay positive. Like sometimes it feels like everyone in the world is against us, but actually the majority of everyday people want the same things that we want. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Maya. I really appreciate you being here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about practical support for people seeking abortions in North Carolina. And we're going to hear about the work of the Carolina Abortion Fund from Camille. Camille, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. So this is Camille. Um, I use all pronouns and I am the director of policy and movement at Carolina Abortion Fund. I've been here since November of 2021, I should say. Um, And a little bit about my work is sort of being amongst the movement, being amongst our comrades, lifting up our voices, um, going to the state house petitioning and speaking to our legislators and elected officials um, and bringing the joy wherever I can. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, So first of all, can you explain just what an abortion fund is and what the Carolina Abortion Fund does for people seeking abortions? Abortion funds are community members, advocates, so many different members of our community coming together and helping directly fund the abortions or the procedures happening inside of our clinics. We came to be in 2011. Um, We had one staff person at the time, then we grew to two, then we grew to three, then we grew to six over the course of the last few years. Um, And our work is primarily inside of North and South Carolina, where we see 
patients that are going up to any of the 17 clinics between the two Carolinas. Gotcha. 14 clinics. <laughs> um, awesome. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what practical support CAF uh, helps to fund outside of the cost of abortion? Outside of the cost of abortion, Carolina Abortion Fund is able to pay for the lodging support of people who are traveling inside the Carolinas. We also are able to help with childcare as well as gas stipends or gas cards, whatever people typically prefer. And that changes depending on what they have access to. Um, but that's sort of what our practical support scope looks like. Gotcha. Do you know if calls to CAF have increased since the passage of SB20 and what the kind of broad impact of that has been on the organization? I would say it went up incrementally after the fall of Roe hmm. due to the, the role of disinformation and misinformation. And then as states around us before SB20 started having their legislation go by that was anti-abortion, then our calls went up exponentially more. And just when we thought we were at capacity, SB20 happened. North Carolina had the, the, the experience of being sort of a port city where people were able to still receive care. And then it felt like overnight we were not anymore. Obviously, that changed everything. Our calls are definitely over capacity, which is why we have six people now. We have so many people on the helpline, and it is amazing. But I would say SB20 definitely changed the entire landscape for us after Roe fell. In South Carolina, it is not as hard for me to remember because we resisted those bills for so long. Mm. We, after resisting for so long, it, it feels a lot easier for me to think about South Carolina and to think about the day we do overcome that legislation mm. and what it will look like for us to still have access in both states moderately compared to other states. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we talked earlier about the fact that North Carolina has become a kind of beacon of hope in the Southeast because so many other states are facing six-week bans or full bans. And North Carolina, even after SB20, is still one of the least restrictive states in the area. So is there, do you get, do you have a way of getting feedback from patients on how this type of care has impacted them or how the funding that they receive has uh, kind of helped them? Yes, we have a lot of different ways of being able to hear back. First of all, we do had we had a follow-up program through the National Network of Abortion Funds for a brief moment where we were able to call back and check in with our, our people and see how they were doing. People did really appreciate that. Um, additionally, being a movement person, being outside means I see our people very often on accident, on happenstance, or just because we were at the same action. Um, and I've had a lot of beautiful conversation with people who have been supported by CAF. Additionally, and on top of that, most people who have been supported by CAF do find their way into working for CAF or doing this work in a way alongside CAF. Um, so there's numerous ways outside of just our thank you cards and our, our, our listserv responses. We see our people too. That's really amazing. I think building community, we talked about this earlier in the episode, how building community is such an important part of being a part of this movement because we need to not feel alone and feel like we have support from other people. So it sounds like CAF is creating that community by virtue of bringing people into the space who 
um, have been impacted directly by this work. So that's really amazing. I love my work. Yeah. I love my <laughs> So I have heard that CAF has an abortion doula training program, but mm-hmm. I don't know much about it. Is that something that you can speak about? Um, yes, I actually can. It's almost complete. I just finished our slides and it is going, our first abortion doula training of the year is going to be on February 15th, the weekend of February 15th and February 16th. It was, it's a two-day training. We are not a credentialing agency, um, but we do feel like we are equipped to give people a tool for their toolkit in caring for their community. It's all the information that we have. It's all the education that we have. We as doulas continue to seek education outside of CAF and support each other in our own little doula journeys. You know, I'm a doula outside of CAF as well. Um, But instead of CAF, I get to use my doula hat for the abortion doulas. We are expecting 30 incoming doulas. That's amazing. Can you talk about um, a little bit about what an abortion doula is and does? An abortion doula is just another member of your support team. So some people have um, access to their clinic, so they have access to an OB or they have access to a a clinician. Um, They have access, hopefully, to a friend or a family member who is supporting them. And more intimately, they will have their doula. An abortion doula is there just like a birth doula is there, just like a death doula is there during a major transition in your life. And they take the responsibility of being able to witness you in your most powerful moment and remember what happened to you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. So what would you say to somebody who hears this conversation and wants to get involved with the movement? Where would you suggest they start? Um, I would suggest they go ahead and go to our website and let us know they want to volunteer. We are always accepting volunteers to the policy and movement side of Carolina Abortion Fund in addition to our helpline volunteers. At this time, we are not actively looking for doulas since we have a new cohort cohort about to start. But as soon as that changes, we would let folks know. And for folks who don't feel like they have the capacity, of course, it's always a great idea to fund an abortion yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking in this episode about how um, people feel kind of powerless and frustrated with the way that things are because the decisions about their bodies and their futures are being made by people who they didn't vote for or, you know, are being made by people who don't know them. And, you know, a lot of these people, they have voted, they have called their their representatives and feel like that didn't stop SB20 from getting passed. So we're trying to expand our definition of how to support abortion access um, beyond the legislative advocacy role. Funding abortions can be such a great way of providing this practical support and allowing people to access the care that they need, however that is going to look. It feels like you're saying like outside of the legislative world or even outside of the most obvious answers, what else is left in in this abyss? (laughs) And for me, especially as a a Black person, a Black mom, a Black Southerner, I wrestle hopelessness every day. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether or not you vote for these people, your abortion champion is not going to be your Black liberation champion. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know very intimately how scary it is to have your life be hanging in the balance. But for me... With that being said, it is my duty to have hope. It is my duty to resist in the most fiercest ways, which include rest, joy, fellowship, my friendships, my loves, my baby, 
the best way for you to resist your despair in this world is to resist with your happiness. All of these legislations, all of these tools are used to diminish our joy, to convince us to get rid of ourselves, one less body in the movement, so they have less people to fight against. It is your duty to to resist in a different way. You don't have to donate money today. You don't have to join a fight today. If you laughed, you're behind off. You resisted the government today. I love what you said about rest. I think that this movement can be draining. It can be so difficult on the mind and the body to be witnessing people's struggles and to be um, burdened with the feeling of responsibility for other people and for the greater movement. And it can be, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes, I think, to maintain hope. And like you said, it's, it's a practice that you have to do um, to be a part of the movement and in this longevity, in this long term. So yeah, I really appreciate what you said about kind of the other aspects of your life fueling that work and bringing you joy. Um, I think that rest is an underrated form of resistance um, because we do so much. And I, you know, I think that's true of everybody who advocates for abortion access is tired. We're all really tired. <laughs> Rapid response lasts like 12 months of the whole year. Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about rapid response in this work and actually that's just our full-time work is rapid our response. Regular job. Uh, yeah. And it is a lot of cortisol. It's a lot of um, maintaining a high level of stress and we know that's not good for the body. So um, taking a break and taking a nap. <laughs> and also yeah. changing the way we protest. Mm. I'm not, I'm not shitting Durham or anything. But sometimes you guys protest in a way that feels so monotonous. I want to see people dancing. I need y'all to bring out the tambourines. Y'all need to sing to your ancestors and you wouldn't be so tired. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think, you know, as a person with a disability, it's hard for me to protest sometimes. It's hard for me to stand up for that long or walk around and march. And, and so I often have to think about what can I do for the movement beyond showing up at a protest and what can I do with my skill set and my um, abilities to show up for other people. And um, I mean, I think that's why I'm so glad that we have an organization like CAF because it's it's an easy way to, it's, it's an easy decision for me to, you know, put money directly into the pockets of the people who need it and to feel like that is an action that even if you only have $5 that you can take to feel like you're doing something because you are. <laughs> you are. Any little thing that you do is still resistance. And at the end of the day, this movement is that it is it is something that comes before the legislation. How we feel as a people, as a general body, is what will influence what's happening inside the state house. So it is our duty to be able to find those different ways to feel resistance and to feel our power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm so curious about, you know, your work in policy and advocacy. How do you sustain that work even though it is 
we're being represented by people who don't represent us, who don't take our interests into account and who use underhanded methods to try and pass these laws that restrict our bodies. So what, how do you see your role in that? And, and how do you find uh, kind of fulfillment in that role? Um, for me, I always get to go alongside our policy and movement volunteers. So first of all, it's always a tiny reunion since most of us are in our own counties or our own different Carolina states. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sustainability is, is endless for me because I'm, I'm amongst my community every single time I have to go to the state house. Um, and additionally, Carolina Abortion Fund is a 5013C. So like we don't do endorsements or anything like that. And what a blessing that is <laughs> for me. Um, I don't have to pretend I think that any side is doing any better than the other. Mm-hmm. None of us have to do that. We don't have to disseminate information that feels disingenuous, That we don't have to do that. So at least in, in my place of work, our policy stuff feels sustainable because it is always coming from our hearts. We get to say exactly what we're looking for because we're talking to anyone who's elected. And for me, that that's, that's sustainability. Um, I do think if we had to do endorsements or anything, I would not be here. You'd be talking to a different cast person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think going into an election year is, this is intimidating. First, this is our first election year with a policy person. And I am really excited. I mean, like, I'm starting the year here with you. Um, and that's how all of my movement work always feels. I'm like, oh, my baby. Oh, my homie. Oh, my comrade. It's never, ever a dull moment. And so for me, I have filled my months with my favorite people. And it's easy to do because this work is full of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's so much support to be found for people who are looking for it in this movement because they're, everybody else who's doing it is feeling the same things and is looking for community and looking for togetherness. And that really helps to make us feel heard and seen even when things are not going well for us or when things it's feeling like we're not being heard and seen on this bigger scale with the legislature. On so many different issues that brought up a lot of feelings for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's been an emotional, I mean, lifetime, but definitely the last few years have felt intense. They've been difficult. And also they've been a source of community support because everybody, I think, I think a lot of people who didn't really believe before that things were going to get this bad were surprised when Roe was overturned and then came on side and have found new opportunities for community that weren't there before or that they have created as a reaction because there's just been this outpouring of anger and frustration and sadness and grief. And that has to go somewhere and that has to do something. And so people are looking for ways to express those feelings together and to find out what to do with those feelings. And that's kind of what this series is about is um, directing people and those, that outpouring of emotion, trying to give it somewhere to land. Um, so in, with that in mind, kind of, are there any actions besides interpersonal community and besides donating to CAF that you would kind of recommend to people who want to feel empowered and want somewhere to to spread that feeling? I would empower people or I would encourage people to seek within their local communities first, 
fight within your local communities. Go with your crew to your county house, your city house, because the small little pockets of power are non-existent in the South. At least that's what they think. The truth is we have always, wherever there is the most pressure, that is where the most beautiful community is born. We are the, the sum of the wins that we've had before us. Being an activist or getting active or fighting your community is not a big action. It is a small action. And you can find that in your library, being yourself, going to your preferred section of the bookstore and finding someone who's in the same section of the bookstore as you or the library as you. Um, you can go to your local game store and find the same kind of game nerd as you. There, are, You can be on Discord and radicalize your community via Discord. Um, I think it just takes feeling comfortable talking about what it is you want to see change and seeing who flocks with you, seeing who else wants to see things change. Yeah, I love that advice of starting where you are because I think people imagine politics as this big entity that is scary and intimidating and lives in Washington, D.C. And so they don't feel like they can affect change as just one person in, you know, one of our states. And that just isn't true because there are so many little things that you can do to make a difference. That framing is perfect, too, because, like, an advocate is literally just someone out here fighting for their life, screaming real loud with a microphone, but they're just as scared as you. They just lost the same rights as you. Mm-hmm. We're all an advocate whenever we're ready. Yeah. And we all have the capacity to learn and grow together. I think that sometimes folks feel like they don't know enough to get involved and you only know as much as you're able to find information and learn. And um, we only know as much as we've able we've been able to There's also so much that we know already, though, that we just don't believe is truth until Mm -hmm. we suddenly see ourselves represented maybe on screen or by a representative or by an advocate. And we're like, oh, you know exactly my life story. You ate the exact same things as me as a kid. I didn't know that this could be intellectualized. Like, yeah, a lot of us do already know. And I, I just want everyone to know, like, your inherent knowledge is what they want you to forget. We do know. We really do. Absolutely. I think... I mean, especially for people having an abortion, they kind of feel like nobody else in their community is going through that experience because nobody is talking about it. But actually, you know, lots of people who have had an abortion and those people are there as resources to talk to and learn from. And the only way to find out that information and to create those connections is to share your own story, I think, and to ask and to talk about it. Storytelling is such a powerful tool. Yeah. Absolutely. So Camille, what is your hope for what CAF is going to look like and be doing 10 years from now? Um, 10 years from now, I hope that CAF does not exist. I hope that we succeeded, that abortion is free, that abortion can happen anytime, anywhere, on demand, any state. Um, And I hope I'm minding my business after that. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great Um, future. The the. The work of an abortion fund is not for us to be, like, growing in size or, like, having to, like, meet the demand forever. Ideally, one day, the movement will succeed and everyone will understand this is basic health care. And so abortion funds should not have to exist. Like in other countries (laughs) where they don't exist. (laughs) Other countries, it's just, you need an abortion? Cool. We have doctors. We care about you. 
that's what that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for Carolina Abortion Fund to be a distant memory. Perfect. Yeah, I love that future. Um, I'm also hoping to put myself out of a job. I think that mm-hmm. that's what everybody in this movement is looking to do. Everybody who works in reproductive health and freedom, we are working so that um, there isn't any work left to do. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the questions that I had, but I did want to ask, is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to talk about, that you want to say, uh, that you want somebody listening to take away from this conversation? Um, I hope anyone listening is going to take a fantastic nap after this <laughs> podcast. I hope the one takeaway that you take away from this is that your joy is resistance and that you keep being happy as long as you can. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here, Camille. Love and you. I love you too. <laughs> um, and this conversation has been very healing. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Through our conversations with Maya and Camille, we've heard several strategies that we can use to support people trying to access abortion in North Carolina outside of the legal and legislative systems. The resilience of care and compassion persists no matter what happens in the legislature. People sought abortions before Roe v. Wade, and they have continued to do so after. The strength of a united community can have a huge impact on the patient experience. Looking ahead, our commitment to supporting abortion seekers in North Carolina remains unwavering. This is how, together as a community, we will continue to stand with and advocate for those in need of reproductive health care, fostering a compassionate and supportive environment. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about this issue and how to get involved, you can check out our abortion guide at acluofnc.org slash abortion. We highly recommend you follow the work of Sister Song and Carolina Abortion Fund, who are doing incredibly valuable work in our communities. We'd also like to extend an invitation for you to watch our upcoming documentary, North Carolina's Abortion Story. The film explores the rich history of abortion rights and reproductive justice in North Carolina. Premier events will be hosted at a location near you. Thank you for joining This Is How, brought to you by the ACLU of North Carolina. If this episode resonates with you, we challenge you to take action. If you go to aclunorthcarolina.org, you'll find ways to donate and volunteer. Join us on social media as well. And if you like the show, share it with your network, subscribe on YouTube or podcast app, or give us a rating at ratethispodcast.com slash A-C-L-U-N-C. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon on This Is How.